0: If you would turn with me to 1 Samuel 30, we will look at a background to a psalm that David wrote, which is amazing. It's a psalm he wrote at a time of utter, utter hopelessness from a human perspective, and yet he was able to praise God even in that circumstance. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now what happened... When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great they did not kill anyone but carried them away and went on their way so David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives their sons and their daughters had been taken captive Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters.' But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to live in terms of it. We pray that you would anoint us by your spirit and give us the ability to have the grace that David experienced and many of your saints down through the years have experienced. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. James Deloach uh, tells the story of um, seeing a painting that uh, really had a huge impression upon him. It was a burned out old mountain shack where the only remains that were there was a chimney and some smoldering uh, burned um, uh, timbers that were lying on the ground. And in front of this burned out shack was an old man who looked like he could have been a a grandpa. And he was dressed in nothing but his Long John's underwear. Beside him was a little boy that was holding a patched pair of uh, overalls. And the impression you got from the picture is that they had barely escaped with their lives and had been standing outside the home watching everything they owned going up in flames. But what was interesting about that picture is underneath was the caption uh, that said, "'Hush, child, God ain't dead.'" And obviously, it was the grandpa talking. Hush, child, God ain't dead. And that grandpa there was not saying that because he was not experiencing pain. Obviously, he had experienced the loss of everything as well. But he was able to approach life like the Apostle Paul, who said that even though he was pressed down on every side, yet he was not crushed. Even though he was struck down, he was not destroyed. And even though he was in anguish, he was not despairing. And yet there are many people, even Christians, who when their metaphorical mountain shack burns down, they do the exact opposite. When pressed down, they are crushed in spirit, and they're never the same again. They're no longer fun to be around because they have become so bitter in spirit And uh, they not only become bitter in spirit for themselves, but they lash out at others and they make life miserable for others. And they illustrate the fact that they have become a crisis themselves. And so the title of the sermon today is Facing a Crisis Without Becoming a Crisis. Now, crises can hit anybody. Uh, Every one of us is going to experience crises at some point in our lives. But David and his men uh, were hit particularly hard in this passage. And verse 1 introduces the problem by making us realize how tired and exhausted they were even before the grueling events of the next 24 hours that we'll be looking at in the future. Uh, Take a look at verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. When these men arrived in Ziklag, they have already traveled a minimum. This is the lowest figure anybody's calculated, a minimum of 120 miles in the last six days. And they've been carrying this battle gear, this equipment, all of the food that they need for however long their campaign they expected to be. That's all the way from here to Lincoln and back again, carrying all of these packs. And uh, actually, many um, conservatives believe that they went a lot further. There's four potential Ziklag's on the map with question marks beside them. And there are many who believe this is the, not Ziklag, um, uh, Afek. thank you. Um, They think the the Afec that they came from was right next to Shunem because of verses that seem to indicate that the, the armies were facing Uh, each other. And if that was the case, then they would have been marching 232 miles over the previous six days, which is a little harder to believe because that's 36 miles a day, a little bit over 36 miles a day on average. I'm not going to get into the pros and the cons of the arguments back and forth on on that question. I'm just going to In this sermon, assume the lower mileage of the lower affect. They're still exhausted either way uh, when they come to Ziklag. And then verse 4 says that they wept themselves into a state of utter exhaustion, or as the author words it, until they had no more power to weep. And then they had to run another 15 miles to try to catch up with the Amalekites. And they're so exhausted at that point that 200 of them, even to save their own wives and children, cannot go one step further. They just, they just collapse on the ground and they stay there to guard all of the equipment. And David and 400 more men, i go running after the Amalekites. They get to the Amalekites at dusk in verse 17 and they're fighting for the next 24 hours against those Amalekites. They must have been unbelievably exhausted. Just incredible. Physical exhaustion can affect us spiritually. And I've seen this over and over again where people begin doing stupid things spiritually. Why? Because they're so depressed. They're so exhausted uh, in their bodies. And though uh, these men didn't at first have the the perspective of the grandfather in that picture that I mentioned earlier, um, uh, David helps them to get there. Initially, though, they lash out. They lash out at David. Tiredness alone, just forget about all of the other parts of this crisis, tiredness alone can make people turn a molehill into a mountain. It, It just becomes a huge crisis for them. But when you've got a real mountain, a huge crisis, they fall apart. It completely undoes them. The second thing that hit them hard was that their city was ruined. They had no place to stay. Verse 1 continues. The Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. Now, some people are able to handle losses a lot better than other people, but I want you to just try to put yourself into their position and imagine that you've lost your house, you've lost your entire wardrobe. The only clothes you have are the clothes that you got on your back and perhaps that you've carried with you in your in your satchels. You've lost your books, your entire life savings, your keepsakes, all of your important papers, and you're wandering around the city in a daze, and there is nothing there. There's no city council. Well, actually, that might be a blessing. Uh, there's no <laughs> library. <laughs> uh, there's nothing. That would be unbelievably difficult to face, uh, to have the, the loss of all of these things. And until you have actually faced something like that, you can't be judging others. You, know? you don't know how you're going to react Uh, If you have been prepared, perhaps you will react like Job did, but many people will react by becoming a part of the crisis themselves like Job's wife did. Verse 2 goes on, And had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now having all of your loved ones killed, would be an unbelievable blow. But I think what's even worse is wandering around looking for your loved ones in the rubble. You don't see any bodies and you suddenly realize they've all been kidnapped. They've all been taken into captivity and knowing the Amalekites, they may have even many of them been taken into sexual slavery. I cannot imagine the anguish of heart as you are worried sick to the depths of your soul as to what is happening to your wife and to your children. This would be unbelievable. I think I could handle the loss of stuff. But I think what would probably undo me is the realization that the Amalekites have kidnapped and sold into slavery my wife and my children. This is an unbelievable blow uh, to these men, very unbearable. Other than Job, there aren't very many people who have had... Who have suffered such a great loss as David and his men did in this uh, chapter. In fact, I can totally appreciate the curses that David pronounces upon the Amalekites in Psalm 69. Uh, It uh, brings that psalm to new life. And by the way, that's one of the psalms. There's two psalms that uh, commentators believe God inspired David with on this particular day, and Psalm 69 is that. In that psalm, he says, "...let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents." And he goes on to pronounce God's curses upon these people in a way that I believe is totally appropriate. Now, of course, God has already judged all Amalekites to destruction, right, by, by his revelation. But uh, verse 3 summarizes the crisis by saying this. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Now I have watched men believers in India who have lost everything like this by persecution from the Hindus and I have watched them weeping as they cling to Jesus and I've watched others who have lost everything weeping as they have lashed out against God and against everybody uh, who was around them because of the bitterness now both groups received a similar crisis, but one group made things worse by becoming a crisis themselves. And that's what happened to David's men. Uh, They had very unhelpful, though very understandable, responses. Uh, You know, it's not like I don't sympathize with them, I do. Verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Now, let me emphasize, first of all, that the weeping is not the inappropriate part. In fact, there'd be something pretty strange about you if you did not weep as they, as they were weeping here. I think everybody here has probably experienced sobbing and weeping till you are numb because of traumas that you have experienced. It is a common human experience, and there is nothing wrong with weeping. Jesus wept. There is nothing wrong with feeling distressed. Matthew 26, verse 37 says that Jesus was, quote, sorrowful and deeply distressed. And again, there's something wrong with you if you're not distressed over a situation like this that has happened. And so I want to make clear, that's not the problem. It is normal to cry your hearts out over a pain like this. But like Jesus, you need to get a grip on things and go on and do God's will just like Jesus did and just like David did. Too often, people lash out at God, and they will lash out at anyone that they can pin the blame on. And often, it flows from despair. And it is despair that is inappropriate. We are called to live by faith, And despair is the antithesis of faith. Now, the later verses show that David's weeping was not a weeping of despair. But for many of these men, it was. Despair means you've been completely robbed of faith, hope, and vision. You see no point in going on. And I found it interesting that the virulent uh, atheist Bertrand Russell admitted toward the end of his life that he felt utter despair. Uh, He wrote in his biography we stand on the shore of an ocean crying to the night and the emptiness sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness but it is the voice of one drowning and in a moment the silence returns that's an incredibly bleak look on life but you know even believers can have that when they focus on the pain rather than focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ we can have that kind of an outlook A second unhelpful response is to lash out at others. These men lashed out at David even though David had lost just as much as they had. He was in anguish of soul just like they were. And often leaders get the brunt of people's tragedies being heaped on top of their own tragedies. They become the scapegoats. And if any of you have desires for leadership, you need to realize that leaders many times have to be willing to be a scapegoat, Uh, be be willing to have people accusing you falsely. It doesn't excuse their sin, but leaders have to be even tougher. And so take a look at verses 5 through 6. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal, or Nabal as the Hebrew is, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. And David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I can sympathize with those men who felt like they needed to lash out at something. We can understand. I mean, they've got rage, and they want to take it out on somebody, and David's the only one that they can lash out at. It doesn't make it right, it's a sin, but it is understandable, definitely understandable. I remember a movie that I watched one time that I I thought so graphically portrayed this, Uh, a husband and a wife who loved each other dearly, but this wife had been brought to such anguish of spirit that in, in, in frustration she was beating on her husband's chest, And the only thing he could do is just hold her and express his love to her till finally she gave in to his love. And sometimes God calls us leaders to do that. We not only have to bear our own anguish, but we have to help out our family and our relatives to work through their crisis as well. Help them to not be part of the crisis. But initially, sometimes that's exactly where they are at. And, of course, the same verse shows that they had become bitter. If you look at the margin of your New King James Version, the word grieved is literally bitter. They had become bitter over what had happened. It doesn't matter how great your pain or loss might be, when you allow the injustice of it all to make you bitter, you are no longer simply a victim of the crisis. You have become a crisis itself. Okay, And until you get a grip on yourself and with numbness and pain, yes, it's going to be there, you start dealing with it, you're going to continue going down that slippery slope. You're going to make yourself into more and more of a crisis. So how in the world did David manage to face this crisis without becoming a crisis himself? How did he end up helping his men to get through this crisis? Well, it's hinted at in our text, but it's much more fully opened up in the two psalms that he wrote during this time. Uh, many commentators believe that he wrote Psalm 25 and Psalm 69. I want you to turn to Psalm 69. We're just going to look at the first few verses uh, there, but I think uh, these, these are words that God inspired him with to enable him to cry those back uh, to, to him. Now, before I look at the psalm, I do want to emphasize that this is a messianic psalm. The New Testament quotes it at least five times and has other allusions to it, making it crystal clear these were the words of of Jesus. Now, the fact that it is a messianic psalm opens up all kinds of other interpretive problems. For example, how in the world do you interpret the confessions of sin? You know, some commentators say, well, he became sin for us, and maybe he's he's, uh, expressing the fact, taking a blame that does not belong to him. And I'm not going to get into, in, into uh, trying to resolve that for you, but all commentators that I have say the New Testament makes clear these were the words of Jesus. Now, what encourages me about that initially is that this means that Jesus, if these are his words, Jesus understands what it means to be absolutely overwhelmed by the circumstances, this person is almost feeling like he's drowning as the waves are coming over him. And so Jesus understands, he sympathizes with us. He is a high priest who fully sympathizes and cares for the things that you are going through. But anyway, this psalm is also the experience of David. Every one of the commentaries say it's not just the words of of Jesus, it is the words of David. David stands as a type, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. By the way, the fact that he's a type helps to explain some of these odd uh, verses in the, in the passage as well. But he was anticipating what it meant to have everything stripped away from him. So let's read the first few verses of Psalm 69. Verses 1 through 4, I think, capture so well the weeping that First Samuel 30 describes. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. I think you can get a feel for the utter anguish of heart that David is experiencing here. And not only does he have to face the pain of loss... But all of his men are lashing out at him, and they're blaming him for the losses. They're saying, you owe us. You're going to pay for this, David. You have to pay us back. And they're probably saying other ridiculous things that are totally irrational, don't make any sense. And so David says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Okay, he felt utter hopelessness in this situation. And so in these first four verses, we see that David is realistic about the desperate straits that he is in. He was not in denial. He did not have a Pollyanna view of uh you know life where you're only going to focus on the positive i've talked to so many people oh no you can't be negative you can only focus on the positive no he did not bury his head in the sand and deny how things were in fact he's crying out his heart to the lord and describing the horribleness of the situation that he was going through And I think this is an appropriate thing for us to do as well. Cry out your heart to a loving father who cares for you. What it does is it unleashes those emotions constructively rather than bringing them in and allowing them to make us bitter. You pour out your heart before God, but you do it appropriately. Now in verses 6 through 8, we see that even his relatives had turned on him. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children." He didn't have a single person that he could turn to, not even his brothers. His brothers had turned upon him. And yet he never lost sight of the fact that God was his friend. And so David was realistic in his assessment of the situation. And this is so important. There are some forms of psychosis that are simply inappropriate responses uh, to the horrible things that are around you. They're They're trying to escape. They cannot face Uh, Reality, and so they create a fake reality of their own, which is not real, actually, and they try to suppress their feelings. That is as bad as lashing out at God or lashing out at others. David expressed his emotions to God and he painted a picture to God of life being as bad as it really was. You don't tell people in those circumstances, smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, you're going to get shot if you say something like that. That is not appropriate. You describe the problem as it really is, and then you start working on it. It's the only way a leader is going to be able to help people get through things. If you don't identify with how bad they feel, you're not going to be taken seriously in the remedies that you're seeking to bring. Second, as a leader, David took responsibility for his part in the situation, as a good leader, he admitted that the buck stopped with him. Even though it wasn't his fault, the buck stopped with him, as Ronald Reagan used to say. He didn't try to excuse himself. Now, with hindsight, he probably thought, Man, that was not a good idea to leave my kids and my wives without any soldiers to protect them. Why did we all uh, take off on this battle? Look at verses 5 through 7. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. He's not excusing himself. In fact, he's saying, how could I have been so stupid? Why didn't I leave somebody here to protect the women and the kids? He's taking the blame. Now, I think these words have a different application for Jesus, but anyway, he continues, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. He's saying, in effect, don't let them suffer because of what I have done. Then he repeats the same thought. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. He's basically saying, don't let the others suffer because of what I need to go through. I was trying to serve you when I went up to Aphek, and this backfired on me, and the people hate me for it. So he's taking responsibility. In fact, like Jesus, he is taking blame that was not his own. The fourth thing that 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says that he did was to strengthen himself in the Lord. Look at the last phrase of verse 6. But, and that but is contrasting David's appropriate responses to the other men's inappropriate responses. But, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. that's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. It indicates that even though God's grace enabled David to cope, it didn't happen automatically. There was a struggle on David's part to get a grip and to be determined to live by grace rather than giving up. Uh, Arnold's commentary says this, The expression emphasizes David's personal faith and does so in a way that illustrates the synergistic nature of faith. That is, faith requires a human response, though it is enabled by God, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Even though God graciously makes faith possible, it is up to us to respond to his grace. Here, David musters up his strength in his greatest moment of crisis, The full significance of this strength is in the phrase, in the Lord his God. This means, oh excuse me, the means by which David is strengthened during his crisis is Yahweh himself. The added his God stresses the personal relationship between Yahweh and David. And I think he is exactly right. If you do what you feel like doing during a crisis, you will become the crisis. Okay? You can't just wait till God makes you feel like doing something. You need to hold, lay hold of his grace. You got to get past what you feel and start doing what you know that you must. And it is faith in God and in his care for you that enables you to do so. Uh, there have been times in my life where very literally I've had to yell at myself to do the right thing saying, Phil, cut it out, get a grip. You are going to do what God's will calls you to do. You are not going to give up. You're going to believe in God. And just pounding that into myself. During a psychological crisis, some people feel like crawling into a fetal position and just wishing the world would go away. They, they don't care that... Uh, Uh, They're going to flunk their exams. They don't care that the food's going to get moldy and rotten in the kitchen. They don't care if they die. They just want the world to go away. And uh, they've lost all will to move on. I felt like that for three years when I was up in Canada with a severe depression that was medically... medically induced. I I didn't want to work, but I prayerfully forced myself to go to work. I felt sometimes it was like grabbing myself by the scruff of the neck, shaking myself and said, Phil, I don't care that you don't feel like going to work. You are going to do what God calls you to do. You're going to depend upon him. I didn't feel like getting out of bed, but I forcefully and prayerfully made myself uh, get out of bed. People in such profound depression sometimes don't care about anything except for their feelings. They just tell everybody, just go away, leave me alone. But like David, we must resist that despair. We need to wrestle with our feelings and strengthen ourselves in the Lord to do the right thing. And part of strengthening himself was almost certainly these two psalms that he cried out uh, before God. Part of it was refusing to believe the lies of Satan. Part of it was vehemently arguing with himself and insisting that he believe in God. You can see that in those psalms. Part of it was directing his hope toward God and not toward man. Part of it was believing the promises of God. And you can see that and other ways in which he strengthened himself in the Lord, but it was an act of the will by which he said, Yes, Lord, I'm clinging to you. I'm not going to let go of you. And I would encourage you to do the same during those times when you just feel, I can't go on, that you take Psalm 25, you take Psalm 69. And actually, some of my other favorites, Psalm 27, wasn't written here, but it's a marvelous psalm to help you, or Psalm 46. And those can help you to keep on keeping on even when the going is tough. So the first, uh, that that one there is, uh, he strengthened himself in the Lord. The fifth appropriate thing that we see in David's response in 1 Samuel 30 is that he sought guidance from God. In verses 7, this is back in 1 Samuel 30, verses 7 and following, he asked Abiathar to bring the ephod so that he could inquire of God. This was the priestly means of finding guidance uh, in the Old Testament. So he's asking for wisdom. Well, let me tell you something. James chapter 1 promises every one of us that we, he will give to us the wisdom that we need to take the next step. He's not going to open up your whole future, but he will give the wisdom you need to take the next step. And uh, even though we don't have an ephod, we got something much better. Let me read that for you. James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, did you get that? If any one of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you to him. That's an incredible promise. We don't have an ephod. We've got something way better than an ephod. We've got the promise of guidance at any time that we need that guidance from the Lord. But he says, if you don't ask in faith, you're not going to get it. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now it took me years as a Christian to come to the place where I got past the doubting when I'm asking for wisdom and was able to ask in faith, believing. When I finally came to the place of saying, Lord, you're a God who cannot lie. You've guaranteed that I will have the wisdom if I ask in faith, and I do. And so I ask for the faith to take the next step that I don't know what in the world to do here, and I thank you that you're going to give it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, I didn't feel a lick different inside. I didn't feel any different. But from that day forward, the Lord has consistently given me the wisdom that I have needed without fail, without any fail. And... Uh, Every one of you has a provision that is better than an ephod. Okay, the sixth thing that David did right was to take immediate action. Now, this is really important because it doesn't do any good to get wisdom from the Lord on what to do if you're not willing to take action on that wisdom. And often, I won't say usually because I don't know if it's usually, but often God's wisdom that he gives to us is not designed to make us more comfortable. I want you to notice the wisdom that God gives to David in verse 8. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now, does David feel like pursuing the Amalekites? I bet not. He is dog-tired. What his body feels like is, Lord, can't you just make them apologize, come back, bring back my kids? Okay, that's what his body feels like. But he goes ahead, he does the responsible thing, and he acts upon the wisdom that God has taken. And to fail to take action, next week we're going to be seeing that really this is like finding a needle in a haystack. Uh, Just a remarkable thing. But to fail to take action is to admit to a lack of faith. And this is true And even things that aren't crises, that are just ordinary things in our day-by-day life. If you're not taking action, it's not faith. Let me just try to illustrate this in an ordinary event in my life when we were first married um, I lost my wedding ring on the beach and we had several of us trampled back and forth and back and forth across the beach and we could not see it anywhere because it had been trampled underneath the sand and somebody had said you know Phil it's a hopeless cause even trying to find that and it dawned on me you know those are not the words of faith and I, I said, Lord, um, you know that we're poor. We cannot afford a replacement ring. And it's just a little ring. But Lord, you have said you can give us wisdom. You can open my eyes. And it was really a cool thing because I'm walking along and I just kick the sand like that and up from under the sand pops my wedding ring. <laughs> now, that would not have happened if I had not taken the actions of faith, if I would just been hopeless and said, okay, I can't do anything. Faith is always acting, is it not? And uh, I don't know how many times God has blessed me with courage, renewed strength, wisdom, whatever it is I have needed, but it's only been when I have taken the actions of faith. You know, in the movie, Facing the Giants, I love that concept of preparing the fields for rain. You don't just say, Lord, plow the fields and and bring the rain now you do what you can you prepare the fields for rain that's taking the action so that god can bless with rain but people frequently don't feel like taking action they don't feel like it let me tell you something brothers and sisters your feelings are immaterial to the principle in fact if you felt like it it wouldn't even be an action of faith right Your feelings are immaterial. When people come to me for counseling frequently, they feel so sorry for themselves. They only want me to focus on them and their pitiful little problems. Now, I do focus on them to help them, but a lot of times the help I'm giving is help that's not comfortable. And one of the first homeworks that I will give, along with some other things to give them hope because they can see progress being made, is I will give them an assignment to minister to people who are in a worse situation than they are. And they're many times shocked. Why would you have me ministering to them? I'm the one who's in need to be ministered to. But I ignore it. I make them do that as part of their other homework. And inevitably, it helps their attitude, but it also helps because God is blessing actions of faith that they don't feel like taking, and God blesses them. Uh, what what people in those kind of circumstances tend to do is the opposite. They tend to withdraw, and it always makes things worse. And let me try to illustrate that. Opera singer Beverly Sills died back in two thousand and seven. But before she died, she gave a testimony of how you can really destroy yourself by feeling sorry for yourself. And she had plenty to feel sorry for herself about because her first child uh, was born stone deaf. And this was a huge blow to that musical family. She wept over this, that this child would never be able to hear a musical note in, in its life. The second child was born mentally retarded, and she was so overwhelmed by this providence that she took a whole year off to try to deal with it and did not sing, did not do any of that um, work during the next year. Later, when she was asked how she had learned to cope, she said, the first question you ask is, why me? Then it changes to, why them? It makes a complete difference in your attitude. And she's right. Uh, I believe that David was asking, why them? He sympathized, empathized with his wife and children, and it drove him to action. He empathized and sympathized with his soldiers And it drove him to action. And Psalm 69 shows he had a heart for the pain of his men. He was an effective leader because he was not self-absorbed. He was willing to take action on behalf of others. Another thing that David did right was that when the crisis was over, David showed his gratefulness to the Lord. In uh, verses 22 and following, he equally shared his plunder with the 200 men who were too exhausted to go any further. They had been guarding while the rest of these guys with superhuman endurance had been fighting like crazy, ferociously for the next 24 hours. And they're saying, share with them. They've not done any of the stuff that we've done. And David says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. He showed generosity to them. And then he shows generosity to others in the later verses where he gives a lot of his loot to uh, people in, in Judah and, and, and in Israel. And what these actions of faith were doing in David was they were preparing him to be the shepherd of Israel and the servant of Israel, but more importantly, the servant of God and the friend uh, of God. Uh, not only had he not become a crisis... But he helped his men to get over their crisis and to uh, be solvers of the crisis. Now, for the sake of time, I've had to throw away uh, nine more applications from (laughs) Psalm 69 (laughs) that uh, kept David from being a crisis. But I think if you meditate on that psalm, you'll be able to figure them out on your own. You don't need me to isolate those for you. But let me end with a story. Uh, most of you have probably not heard the story behind the hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. In fact, some of you, you probably, eh, not that hymn, because uh, you've maybe come from an Arminian background where it's been abused. Uh, where, where When I grew up, there were some groups that would use this in high-pressure evangelism. And they would sing the verses of this hymn over and over and over again. Why? Because somebody's got to be converted in every service. And finally, somebody would put us all out of their, our misery by going up and getting converted for the umpteenth time, okay? So that's the background of why some people don't like this hymn. Nothing wrong with the hymn. It's just been abused. It's a great hymn. So anyway, the, the author's name was Charlotte Elliott. She was a sickly English woman who had developed a long history of refusing to do things simply because of her illness. And her brother was a pastor who kept pestering her to try to get her involved in some kind of ministry and pestering her on that. And he knew he needed to get her out of her shell. And her excuse always was, I'm not feeling up to it. I'm an invalid, you know. I just don't think I can. Well, in 1834, her her brother asked her one more time. They were trying to raise funds for a school And she typically, as she usually did, she turned it down and excused it with her illness. And so they left her alone. They went off and uh, were involved in this ministry. was actually uh, seeking to raise some money for a school. And when they left, she started realizing how her sickness had completely taken over her life. She realized she was focused on her sickness, not on God and she began feeling guilty that she was, had been totally unwilling to risk anything for the sake of the kingdom. And she felt like God was calling her to begin to serve no matter what she felt like and uh, with no excuses. And so she started writing the hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come just as I am And waiting not, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And that was the change that was needed to get her to quit being the crisis and to begin being part of the solution to the crises that were around her. And I would encourage you to do the same. Stop being a crisis and start responding by faith to the crises all around you. Be a David and watch God do unbelievably wonderful things through you. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire, even though there may be fear and trembling with it, to be able to stand in David's shoes, not inviting a crisis, but Father, when you will for crises to be in our lives, to respond by faith and uh, to look to You and to find Your strength to accomplish wonderful things through the providences You bring into our lives. Father, there are crises that people in this congregation are facing. Please strengthen them in the midst of their crisis. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.